Welcome to Sinner's Take, another Catholic guys podcast of which we are the worst. I'm Alec. I'm Father Matt. And today we're going to be talking about Father Matt. Father Matt, tell me about yourself. Where are we coming from? All right, so uh, Alec, I got to meet you on the first day of law school. And that sounds like a bad joke, right? A couple of lawyers, one's a priest, they walk in the bar, you never know where it's going to go from there. Uh, Yeah, so I'm a first-year law student at Notre Dame Law School, just about over halfway now in our first semester. Definitely beating me up, I don't know about you. Yeah, oh yeah. Rough going. Uh, But what keeps me going is kind of what brought me to law school, which I hope we get into eventually, but let me tell you a little bit about who I am, where I'm from. Uh, Father Matt Kazora, I'm a Holy Cross priest. Uh, what that means is I belong to a religious community in the Catholic Church. Uh, I am an ordained priest in the Catholic Church, but uh, actually the day before I got ordained a deacon, I took final vows in my religious order, the Congregation of Holy Cross. Uh, so yeah, that's my community, that's my family, if you will, and that's what sustains me as I do ministerial work, sacramental and otherwise as a priest, and you never stop being a priest, but uh, also in the community we get engaged in other kinds of ministry outside of the parish as well. That's why I'm at law school. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I do, I have a couple questions uh, on that front that maybe we'll get to in a little bit. Just to ease into things, we've got a couple questions that we use. So we have on our bios, we ask some of these same questions. So we got to ask you, do you have an idea of what the best secular song to play in a worship setting would be? Like I have to admit, I'm not a huge fan of secular music in sacred space. So I'm just going to put that disclaimer out there. And uh, we're at Notre Dame, and uh, so I'm just going to take a little pass on this one and give at least an easier answer. So we have our alma mater, and it's written uh, for the university. They played at football games. In that sounds very secular, yeah. but it's all about Our Lady. And so when they asked the composers, like, well, what is this? Is this a Marian hymn, or is this a secular song for football? They said yes. Yeah. Both, right? So I'll take that one. Notre Dame, our mother. That's you can awesome. do it at the football stadium, in the Basilica, whenever you'd like. Yeah, per- perfect way out there. I yeah. love that. <laughs> yeah, I guess for what it's worth, I would imagine it at like um, like an XLT or something. Uh, I, I don't even, do you do XLTs out here? I don't know how widespread XLT is. So we do a thing called Exalt. It's adoration yeah. with some silence and yeah. there's a speaker and usually confessions as well. So yeah, certainly yeah. a lot of music there. Yeah, same yeah. same thing. I don't know why they took the vowels out from where I'm from, sure. but yeah. Um, okay, so then do you have, maybe your answer might be in a similar vein, I'm sensing, but favorite cheesy church song? Well, I mean, if it's a church song, then I'm going to embrace almost everything there. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Once you get into the realm, I run with it. Uh, and so I worked as a residence hall rector for the last five years. That meant that I lived and ministered among 18 to 22-year-old college students, and they were, they were all men. It was a men's residence hall. Uh, and so part of that, in addition to sports and service and government and whatnot, uh, there's a chapel in every residence hall. And so we had mass there as well. Wonderful musicians. I'm a terrible singer. I played trumpet when I was in middle school. That's about the extent of my musical skills. But these young men and their friends, their women, friends, female friends would come. We're just great. And we had amazing music there. And uh, anything with a good beat would really get going. And so I guess my most embarrassing, cheesy favorite would be Anthem. You know this song, Anthem? I don't know if I do. I'm not good at noticing songs by name, though, so maybe. I won't sing it, because then you'd have no <laughs> listeners ever. Uh, but it has goofy lyrics, like, we are questioned, we are creed. Like, 
I'm not sure what that means, but it's got a great beat and people kind of go along with it and there's a little call and response kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, again, when you're talking about undergraduate students, uh, it's that kind of thing that helps them to pray well. And I really do appreciate that. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for just how it makes you feel, if separate from the message even. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And so as, as a last icebreaker, because I, from what I can gather, Star Wars is pretty close to your heart. So I want to see your thoughts, Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Marvel, however you want to compare it to what other intellectual property. What what do you got? So I will say that uh, I don't believe in coincidence. Uh, (laughs) Divine Providence is a big thing for us in Holy Cross, and maybe we'll get into that too as far as spirituality. Uh, Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. Uh, That was the year I was born. I'm quite older than most of our classmates. (laughs) Uh, But also, too, my birthday is uh, the 4th of May. So it's Star Wars Day. Oh May the 4th be with you and with your spirit, right? Uh, so it's kind of destined or whatever you want to say with that to be a Star Wars fan. But I also loved it before they started really playing that day up. Um, so huge Star Wars fan. I uh, have a lot of thoughts about that. We can get into that later if you'd like. Uh, I've taught or at least given a workshop to our Master of Divinity Theology program uh, on the, the theology of Star Wars. And it's just a lot of fun to dive into that. Um, so I love Star Wars in the sense of like fiction and fantasy and diving into themes that are important, like hope, right? I mean, even the first film to come out, A New Hope, really revolves a lot around that. I would put that on one side of favorites, and on the other side, I'd put Lord of the Rings. While still fantasy, of course, I don't really believe there's Middle Earth, though I would pray there would be, that's great. <laughs> there's just such deep theology in that, or at least the, the possibility to go into that. Uh, one of our more well-known professors at Notre Dame, he's since passed away, he was a Holy Cross priest, Father John Dunn would write extensively many books on Tolkien especially, but then in particular getting into the Lord of the Rings without boring your audience too much. As you have Aragorn and Gandalf and, and well, later Frodo Baggins, I was going to say Bilbo, Frodo for sure. They actually, you know, Father Dunn really dives into how they play out the three offices or munera of Christ as priest, prophet, and king, right? So Aragorn pretty easily as king, Gandalf the prophet, right? And Frodo carrying the ring, making the offering on Mount Doom, right? I could go all night on this. <laughs> and so I hold that as I make fun of my friends who love Harry Potter and even Marvel, like the kind of kid stuff, right? <laughs> it's just, maybe it's interesting, but nothing like the depth of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that is awesome. I think that Lord of the Rings is almost, it's just bottomless. Like, oh, I love the movie. And you think there's so much in the movie. They're three-hour movies. How could there be more? The books have more. And then there are more books. Yes. And then there are things that, you know, Tolkien put into the world that didn't even make it in the books that he put for his own just to round it out. So, yeah, Tolkien is bottomless. And do you know Joseph Graziano? Yes. Yeah, so he's he's a huge Tolkien guy too. So maybe we'll get a, a There we go. You can do a circle yeah. there. That'd yeah. be great. So Star Wars specifically, providentially, it was always meant to be and then themes of hope. Do you want to give a short pitch on that? So would you like to know about uh, the themes of, of hope in Star Wars or hope as a theological virtue in itself? I would start with Star Wars, end with church. Sure, we could do that. Cool. Yeah. All right, so pretty obvious in the name, Star Wars A New Hope, right? The first film to come out there. I listened to a very fascinating podcast name escapes me right now. Uh, It was about the creation of Star Wars, really the life of George Lucas, and almost told from his perspective, though a narrator giving it. And basically, he was kind of looking around in the mid to late 70s. A lot was wrong, at least in our country, if not in the whole world. A pretty bleak view of politics, uh, the sad effects of war, economics. 
And really that was kind of his goal was to give some people something to hold on to, right? Literally hope. And he wasn't writing a, a Christian allegory in the same way that Lewis would have, C.S. Lewis or Tolkien in a maybe more subconscious kind of way, he might say. Um, so you got George Lucas looking at this world who is without hope, just kind of pretty bleak and writes this story about the underdog and the farm boy, uh, somebody who had something deep within him there. And it just, I think that's what really grabs people's attention when they first watch that film. They were the special effects that were really cutting edge for the time as well. Who doesn't like a good like space fight, right? <laughs> uh, but then we see ourselves there and maybe read the Christian message into that as well, that we need a mentor, right? So Obi-Wan is the, you know, uh, he's the well, trained Jedi there and he sees this in Luke he knows the backstory he's helping to get him there yet Luke also needs to take the steps himself and uh, Joseph Campbell and other secular psychologists you know all can go into this as well in the Christian story both fits but has a lot to offer there as well so yeah I think as we look at ourselves as people of faith uh, people who have a lot of obstacles in the world we can look deep inside to something that does connect us. I'm not going to talk about metachlorians right now at all. <laughs> uh, but we can see that we have that with the help of others, being trained in that, working as a group, as a community. You see those deep bonds of friendship, uh, Han Solo, Princess Leia, and uh, Luke Skywalker, even the droids, maybe count in there too. And so you see the value of community there, uh, as I said, the mentorship, and with that, having just a glimmer to overcome whatever obstacles face you. Uh, so you can kind of go from the movie into our lives and keep going. So in my community, in the Congregation of Holy Cross, uh, you can see this. I wear this you know, medallion, for lack of a better word, I suppose. Uh, we do have a long black habit, right? So it's basically long robes. Uh, this is kind of our, our light version of that, if you will. <laughs> uh, so what it has, I'll describe it. It's, it's made of metal, uh, kind of a chrome. It has a cross on it and then two anchors. Uh, so the motto of my religious community is Hail the Cross, Our Only Hope. It comes from a hymn, originally Latin, but very popular in France in the 18th century and then a little bit later from uh, Good Friday into the Paschal Mystery. And so it, it's really a strange phrase, right? It's an ancient phrase, though, seeing the cross, an instrument of death and darkness, as even that bearing hope. I think that... Uh, contradiction, if you will, that's so central to Christianity has great power in it, as we saw in Star Wars, but of course, much deeper in real life, but also into eternal life as well. So this comes from uh, the letter to the Hebrews, talking about anchoring ourselves in hope, basically, I'm paraphrasing there. So the anchor had become a medieval symbol and art of hope, right? Right alongside uh, charity, love, and faith, right? Faith being person with a blindfold often, charity being a mother with a child, and hope being someone with an anchor, right? And I think about it too, like if you were a sailor in the Navy, that you would have your anchor. If it doesn't hold, uh, there's a storm, you're going to crash against the rocks. So our hope is not based in the force or lightsabers or certainly not in our wealth or power or prestige, but in our faith in Christ and his victory over the grave through the cross. So back to our individual lives. We have those challenges. We have those many obstacles. We can, we, I guess we don't seek them out, but we can embrace them looking through them from the Good Friday into the Easter Sunday, the cross, our only hope. We have two anchors here on this uh, symbol. Uh, we have priests, as I am in the congregation, also religious brothers. What unites us are our three common vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. 
that our ministry is what kind of distinguishes us within the community. I feel called to be a priest to lead in sacramental ministry. Our brothers feel called to serve in other ways. We have brothers who are lawyers, actually, medical doctors, uh, in many fields and different gifts and talents. Some would do things that are as necessary and beautiful as cooking or landscape or those kind of uh, vocational kind of ministries and jobs into being a professor and whatnot. And so seeing the equality and all that in our beautiful diversity, uh, two anchors, one for the brothers, one for the priests, the way I like to see it. Awesome. Thank you. That I've been wanting to ask about it. So that that is very cool. Uh, I think that it's easy. The first thought that came to my mind when we were speaking about the cross was how easy it is for us to forget. Like how many of us wear a crucifix around our neck or it's just around and we forget. And that that's always right. Or right, come Easter time, maybe a good reminder for us watching the passion or something that will ground us. But that to me, my thoughts were kind of like you were saying that if he can make redemption out of that ugliest moment of humanity nailing him to the cross, what can't he do? Right. And so remembering that we almost wear the cross as, it's almost like a mockery, like this thing that was meant to be, they thought, the end of this man who claimed to be God is what we hold up as our the symbol of our redemption. It's just amazing. It's amazing. And it's so easy to forget because we just have crosses and crucifixes everywhere. So that is cool. Do you get a lot of questions on it? Certainly. If I'm on like an airplane or a subway, people will say, oh, are you in the Navy? <laughs> no, I respect our, our people serving the armed forces, but I'm not, right? And it's a great entree into a conversation about who I am. You know, you see me often in class wearing a collar, Roman collar. Uh, but, you know, I, if I'm just like traveling again like that, I'd just be dressed in a sweatshirt or something. But I would still wear my, you know, my cross and anchors, right? In our constitutions, we make a promise to have some symbol of our vows, whether that be the habit, which cross and anchors, you have a cool little pin too, if you want to wear something like that. Obviously, if you and I are going to go play basketball, I'm not going to leave this on. <laughs> I have a bounce in my face. But otherwise, it's on whether I'm wearing a distinguishable kind of priestly garb or not. And so a lot of questions for sure, mm. which I welcome. And it's just a great conversation starter. And I think that's a, a way we can evangelize is being able to talk about our faith, why we do what we do. And you mentioned things we do maybe unconsciously now become common, like a beautiful habit or tradition of wearing a cross. I hope we're prepared to explain to people why. Yeah. And that's what, who was it? Always give, be ready to give a reason for your hope. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So that's, that is, that's great. Well, if we want to talk about the congregation of Holy Cross, yeah. that, I'd be glad to talk about that. I saw, um, just full disclaimer here, Alec did send me ahead of time a couple of prompts. <laughs> and Alec, on one of your prompts, had said, uh, it asked me if I'd like to talk about the Holy Cross. And certainly appreciate that. Uh, it's wonderful. And so it's natural to put that article, the, in front of it, right? And it is the congregation of Holy Cross. Uh, but in Latin, it'd be congregatio a Santa Cruce. I'm not sure how your Latin is. I had two semesters, so I'm not really good. So I'm told, though, that ah is an ablative of place, uh, so a grammatical thing saying y'all are from there. So not of the necessarily, not we certainly have a devotion to the cross of Christ, but it's more about saying the people from that place. Of could be both, you know, belonging to or from or being like kind of connected to in a different sense, like the, uh, the College of the Holy Cross out in Massachusetts, which is not ours, right? It's got that the. 
So we're a group of priests and brothers, also sisters, though they're juridically separate, same mission. We often work together. So we'll say priests, brothers, and sisters from the neighborhood, Saint-Croix, of Le Mans, France. Right? So we were founded in France right after the French Revolution. The country is devastated from years of war and also to the educational system and the faith life as well. So our founder, Blessed Basil Moreau, was looking to gather a group of men and women, priests, brothers, and sisters, in the model of the Holy Family, the priests dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the sisters to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and the brothers to, I believe, is the most chaste heart of Joseph, though that devotion doesn't really exist anymore. But we have that Holy Family there to serve in education, as we would say, being educators in the faith, uh, to do that. But we are all from that neighborhood within a bigger city, and that neighborhood is called Saint-Croix, Holy Cross. I think it's really a beautiful coincidence of history, or again, divine providence, right? That uh, it was just like, oh yeah, those are those, those men and women from, from over there. That's where their school is, that's where their convent is, where their mother house is, that kind of thing. But then when they came to the United States, the northern woods of Indiana in those days, or in our earliest days going to Bangladesh, uh, then East Bengal uh, in Asia, going to places where we haven't stayed necessarily, like uh, Algeria. Absolutely. I go into Algeria. It was a very different experience for those mostly French men and women and then taking vocations from those areas. But wherever they went, they became part of that community. So I'll share a little bit about my vocation as well. My first three years ordained a priest. I was assigned to Monterey, Mexico. Northern Mexico, about two hours south of the U.S. border, like kind of right in line with Laredo, Texas. And when we're there, the house that's still there, the community, the formation house, the seminary, the parish, we try to live as much as we can as the people of our neighborhood live. So trying to not pretend or fake like we're just the same, but to be in solidarity with. So you might be able to say like, you know, that's the neighborhood of Guadalupe, right? That's the community of Holy Cross from Guadalupe, right? You become the guys from there. And uh, some of you try to do it in Notre Dame, I mentioned before as a residence hall rector. So my apartment was right in the midst of all the guys, right? So if their power went out, so did mine. If it was noisy for a guy down the hall, guess what? Same for me, right? Um, so that's just, I think, a part of our spirituality, which comes from the name, and just an interesting tidbit to help you remember. That is beautiful. And uh, do you find that there's any, or is there a sentiment maybe in general of maybe pushback from the community? Like you're trying to... I guess, how welcoming are these communities of you coming and joining and being? That's a great question. I feel very blessed that Holy Cross is over 175 years old now. Uh, so people before me have done the hard work. Uh, talking to those initial pioneers and missionaries, they did have a lot of struggles. Uh, I think some things that worked in their favor is they were willing to go to places where people often would not or could not. So the Bangladesh situation, this was a condition of our recognition as... Um, Congregation of Pontifical Right. So the Vatican asked us, it wasn't quid pro quo exactly, but said like, you know, it, we really need somebody to go to Bangladesh. There have been other communities that had gone and literally people had died. This would be like the 1830s, right? So disease especially, travel was very difficult as well. Not outright hostility in terms of violence, but those other things. And many of our initial missionaries that went there also succumbed to disease and, and died on the way and whatnot. So going to a place that otherwise might feel forgotten, might feel left out, uh, I think there's a little bit more openness and going to a place like Mexico, at least the part of Mexico where I was, where the faith is strongly established. It wasn't this uh, intercredal kind of conflict, certainly more welcome. But again, returning to Bangladesh, a vastly majority Muslim country, right? And so one way I think that our earliest kind of missionaries are folks that when they first went, 
we're able to connect to people was through education. So we're able to bring top flight education and our schools are open to all people. At Notre Dame, for example, 80% of our undergraduates are Catholic and just with open arms welcome people of all faith traditions and frankly those of none, right? And that diversity brings wealth as we exchange ideas, right? To try to grow and learn from each other. Again, return to Bangladesh, most of our students there would be Muslim. And to recognize their faith, acknowledge their faith, share ours as well unabashedly, but also to provide wonderful training to grow as a human being, something we could all aspire to and identify with, but also excellent training in math and sciences and history and philosophy, especially where those intersect as well. So we're going to our founder, Father Baz Moreau. Um, he's getting the congregation together, like I said, in the 1830s. This is a tough time uh, balancing faith and reason, at least in France in those days. And Father Moreau put a real uh, priority on the education of our priests and brothers to go to very even secular places like the Sorbonne to get the best education in these other fields outside of philosophy and theology, of course, with those as well, provide our students, whether they're in France, the United States or Bangladesh, with an excellent education. And that's a way you can ingratiate yourself to people, even if they're of a different faith tradition or otherwise hostile or whatnot, to go and do that. So I benefited from that greatly. And by the time I came to Mexico, those guys would come before, they were just legends, right? And if you're associated with them at all, I mean, the doors would fly open and it's just a lot to live up to, frankly. And I'd always try my best. Yeah. Uh, so my a lot of the time, my questions will come from the skeptic perspective. So one thing that comes to mind is, what would you say to people who are maybe critical of well, you're just going to areas, you're just going to try and convert people. Mm. And maybe it feels, I don't know, the, surreptitious to go like, oh, we're going to help you, but also we're really just trying to make you Catholic. Mm. Did, was there any of that sentiment? Or what would you say to someone who would be concerned about yeah. uh, imperializing the faith? Sure. And I see those as slightly different things. Uh, certainly evangelization is a good. I have, I'm never going to hold back if somebody wants to learn more or wants to become Catholic. And uh, even if they don't, to share my own faith. So that's going to be just something I'm just not going to compromise on. And, you know, I, I feel good about that. I would certainly never force anybody. I don't want anyone to think that. But to, again, be prepared to defend and explain and give reasons why for the faith. Uh, when we talk about colonialism or imperialistic kind of designs, certainly want to recognize the beauty of someone's culture and where they're coming from and their history as well. One of my side passions uh, is the spread of Christianity in the New World, in the, in the Americas. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of force and violence involved in that and economic exploitation. There were also, my subject in that was a guy named uh, Fray Pedro de Gante. He was uh, a nobleman from Belgium, really, the Netherlands, and he was a cousin to the Holy Roman Emperor and also a pupil of the Pope. So he was connected all the way up. Uh, he had big conversion. He heard the preaching of Father uh, Bartolome de las Casas. There's a guy defending the, the, the indigenous peoples as having a soul, being worthy of being treated as full human beings. And there were these different debates basically in front of the emperor at Valladolid. Uh, one side arguing that, no, these are more like animals or not really with reason and we can enslave and the rest. Whereas Father de las Casas was trying to argue for their humanity. This gentleman then just Pedro de Gante, not Fry yet, and he was a Franciscan, eventually heard these, these arguments and was converted. He was Catholic, but from a secular, selfish life, lifestyle into a life for, of vows and religious life. 
he was a religious brother, as I mentioned before, in those days, that would have been a very humble thing, right? Almost a second class to a priest. And there was a group that was asked to go to Mexico. This would have been the second group after Hernan Cortez would go to Mexico. And there were supposed to be a couple other priests in front of him. They got sick and died, or at least weren't able to travel. So they put him on as a second choice. And he goes across the ocean, very dangerous journey, lands there, finds out the other priest that had been there before, he's died in some expedition with Cortez. And shortly thereafter, his two other priest companions had the same fate. So he's there alone, oh. right? And it's uh, an uncertain situation. The whole world there would be turned on its head, uh, obviously in a tragic way for the native peoples, but even for the Spaniards, something very different. And so he goes off to, uh, to a part of Mexico City where he just immerses himself in the culture. He learns the language to a point where he has to write back in Spanish because he's forgotten his native Flemish. He's so enculturated, if you will. And he had had the benefits of a classical education in music and architecture and art. And he uses that, he uses beauty to share the Christian message, to relate, to connect with the Nahuatl people, the Aztec people, uh, to find points of similarity, to explain, to convince. And even in places where others would go using his techniques, they didn't have the benefit, I mean, I use that in quotes, of soldiers or there was no economic potential in the Spaniards' eyes. These mostly priests and brothers would go to these remote locations with the beauty, with the art, with the language skills, with the cultural knowledge that Pedro de Gante would have had into these other areas and share the message that way. So I, I really am inspired by that, obviously, and uh, something I think we can apply today. I think what he used, we talked a little bit about using culture uh, to evangelize. I think we can do that too using music and film and art and sharing those beauties. So then wrapping it all back to our schools and whatnot and this critique that you bring too, um, I would just point to our involvement for 150 years in Bangladesh, at least in the main metropolitan areas where Islam prohibits proselytization or conversion, right? Uh, that's just not on the table, not something that we do. That being said, we've educated a Nobel Prize laureate. Uh, we've had just great impact on that society, recognizing and respecting their faith tradition and earning that respect as well, mostly by educating their young people and helping them to go on to do great things for their country and their world. So. Uh, it's a fine line to walk and one where you want to be confident of who you are, but at the same time, knowing that you're not there to just steamroll everything and make everybody else a copy of you. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that that comes through with if you're living what we say we believe, then that that's going to come through and it's not going to impose itself. So that is awesome. I, it made me think of... Um, something that I hear when I speak with high school students or college students who ask why we need the faith and they'll say like, well, so someone in Africa who's never heard of Jesus Christ is just going to go to hell. And you say, of course not. And they'll say, okay, well then now that you told him about Jesus, now maybe he's going to sin and go to hell. So why bother telling him at all? So the response, uh, we, we had done an episode called Wings versus Chains pretty early on where we talk about do we view the faith as wings that's bringing us to new heights and sharing in his love or is it chains that's just saying you can't do this you can't do that so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that oh yeah i got lots of thoughts <laughs> we'll see what we can we have time for um let me start off on talking about the value of evangelization there's a, a story or an analogy or a parable if you will that we're all basically or we all hope to end up in the same place right people of faith let's say in general toward a happiness, Christians we call it heaven, right? 
as you said, there are certainly different paths there. We don't condemn those just outright who don't share our exact views. So what's the value there? If we're headed toward that place, let's describe or imagine a mountain, right? And the mountain top is our goal. There are many paths on these mountain kind of pathways, right? Some are going to be flat and smooth. Some might be jagged or wind around and whatnot. What we believe as Catholics is that the path that we're blessed enough to have been given, been passed on to us, and we believe God even sent his only begotten son to share with us, right? And continues to inspire and lead us by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty flat path. It's a pretty well-trod, broad path that you can stay on pretty easily, right? To get your way up to that mountain. It's still a mountain. It's not just easy in itself, but it's a pretty good way up there. Yeah, there are plenty of other ways, but maybe they're crooked or they've got obstacles to overcome or just not as direct, right? And I don't mean that as a critique, but I would invite people to check out this path and to give it a try, see how that might work for them. And, and even if we think about, too, like your example of a young person who maybe hasn't chosen their path yet, right? So taking away from interreligious dialogue into just somebody who's looking my heart breaks for them if they're trying to reinvent the wheel on every occasion, right? Why would you clear the ground and put down stones and whatever else you want to do with this analogy, right? When someone's already thoughtfully, prayerfully in dialogue with others, come to some pretty good stuff. And I'm not saying blindly accept it, but maybe start there and dive in as well. And you know, I have some, some wonderful friends who are Protestant Christians, uh, evangelical Christians in specific. And uh, we have a lot of good conversations and often it comes to that, right? And uh, I can say, well, you know, I believe St. Thomas Aquinas has written something about that. We can look at it together and read it together. And they're very appreciative often of that you know, long faith tradition, right? So take that mountain and this uh, kind of view up there. Um, but when you talk about wings and chains, that makes me think about religious life, actually. I'm not sure if you guys took it that direction. But a lot of people and even my own family, when I told them I was thinking about joining religious life, say, wow, that, you know, that's great. You can do this great ministry. That's kind of who you are and you like to help people, et cetera. That makes sense. What about these vows, right? You're going to be making these sacrifices, giving, 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 and it, won't that be just very burdensome? And uh, not to say that it's never not, right? And that I didn't start off at least seeing it that way initially. I've come to really see them in a much different light, that each of the vows, instead of being changed, holding us down or holding us back from some kind of freedom that should be mine, that maybe I'm making a sacrifice for, for the good of others. And there's a bit of that theology there. I really understand it more in terms of the wings to be freed for, right? Instead of giving up from freed for, just quickly march through each three, each of them. Um, so with obedience, right? Instead of needing to go out and find the best place where my skills match with the need in the world, I rely on my religious superiors to know me well, to know our ministries well. And say, you know what, Matt, you would be great at being a lawyer what? I've never wanted to be a lawyer my whole life, right? Here I am. Uh, but also, too, when I was assigned to Mexico, I had some familiarity with our ministries there, but I was asked to be a seminary formator, so like you know, the teacher, if you will, of future priests, and I had just gotten out of initial formation myself. I thought that was quite foolish, right? And as I got into it, I could see where some of my gifts matched up with that need there uh, in a way that I never would have sought out myself. Um, so that freed me for this ministry to go wherever there's the most need, right, from a different point of view. And then with uh, celibacy as well, let's take that to Mexico. When I was first there in 2011, kind of the height of violence, at least in the Monterey area where I was, 
and a lot of the um, State Department personnel had been evacuated, or certainly their families weren't allowed to stay. So you could see other folks from a different realm, but from one country to another, who weren't able to be there, right? But by not having that concern for a hypothetical wife and children, I was able to go there, and, and not that I was foolhardy, but I could. it was at least my choice on that. Uh, so you could see that freedom there. Even, let's take the violence out of it, I could go and make my own friends. I could go there and do that work. I wasn't concerned about finding a great school or a safe home or friends for my own wife and us as a couple or something like that, right? At that, and then to go to poverty as well. I made no money. I was costing the community plenty of money just to feed me down in Mexico. And so the work that my brothers did uh, up here in the United States and other parts as teachers, as parish priests and, and whatnot, that financed our evangelization, our work, our schools, our parish there in my ministry, uh, you know, running that initial formation program for our future priests for tomorrow. Um, so you, that just freed me in each of those ways to not worry about money, to not worry about uh, other relationships, and then to not worry even about my own will. All those things in themselves are goods. I don't mean to put them down in any way, but I, that's how I see it, giving me wings in my ministry. That's beautiful. I love that particularly as a response because one of the common things that we hear also as i'm sure you've heard from some of your undergrad students is why do priests have to be why can't priests have wives why can't they get married and that's um such a common question but and i I think that is a lot of times the most effective response is this frees me if i don't have this not even obligation but responsibilities to a wife and kids, then I am free to commit my life to the work of the Lord entirely. And th- yeah, there's something beautiful about that. Yeah. Off of what you were saying about the path as a young, a young person is kind of deciding and they might try and reinvent the path, do you see a general trend of rejecting tradition or this what, what I'm trying not to say is the arrogance of thinking we can figure it out better than those before us or the Lord himself or anything like that, which I would never accuse anyone of because I know I do it too. Um, so yeah, just a general pushback against tradition. Do you see that in working with so many young people? Yeah, I mean, nobody likes to be told what to do, right? And when you're in high school or in college... If somebody tells you one thing, you're going to do the opposite, more or less. I think we're also, when you're in a college kind of situation, and not all 18 to 22 year olds are in college, and that's certainly not what I'm trying to say, but especially if you're going to a place, you're investing a ton of money, right? There is a certain openness that that chemistry professor knows something you don't know, right? And so there's a little bit of humility, which we could kind of leverage and go from, right? But I think we as Catholics of all ages and backgrounds, again, need to be ready to share the joys of our faith, the why it matters reason kind of thing, right? And the day is gone where because my family was, I am too, and everybody in my neighborhood is, and that's all I know, right? We need to do better now to, yes, talk about family tradition, which is a rich thing that a lot of people do latch onto, but tradition in the sense of this has helped people get through all kinds of terrible things also magnifies their joy, multiplies their happiness because you know where it's coming from and frankly where you're going, right? Diving into those reasons. So I I talk to, I I live with young adults, but I talk to a lot of grandparents actually when I go to the parish and it's just a sadly too common story where grandma and grandpa say, you know, my grandkids, they don't go to church and I really worry about them and I share that worry. 
And I ask him, you know, what are you doing? What are you saying to him? And a lot of times it's like, well, you have to, right? And, and I, I even I won't go to your wedding unless it's a Catholic wedding. Well, those are sad <laughs> stories. Um, but I say to him after we, I hear him out, you know, why don't you share your experience of a terrible time in your life? You know, someone died, you lost your job, you had to move under very undesirable circumstances. Share how your faith was the common thread there, how that kept you going, how when the rest of the world was falling apart, God was a steady rock. We need to share those joys. And when it comes from your grandma, grandpa, those are some people you're going to listen to more than others, right? More than your teacher, maybe even your parish priest. You just have such deep respect and deep relationship, hopefully, with those folks. And also, too, we are sadly getting close to losing a generation, at least in this country, that did grow up with the neighborhood parish, right? Where all they knew was the... Catholic Basketball League and the dances and the rest, there was a beauty in that and, and a security there. And it wasn't perfect. There's critique there too. But uh, we needed to really record their voices and their stories. Um, and we'll do that. You know, we'll catalog, catalog that and keep it. But also too, to share it you know, in the flesh right now. Uh, so I'd encourage any of our older listeners out there to please be sure to do that. Uh, but yeah, talking about young adults, we have to help them to understand the value. There's so many things competing for their time and their interests, and also, too, to hit home, like, this is about you. This is about uh, your benefit in this world and the world to come, and a great love that is unconditional. So much of our world is uh, wanting something from people and ultimately very hollow. We have something very different to offer. Um, The other thing I would add to that about young people today, and I sound like an old man myself talking about young people (laughs) as a group, I say a lot of people under the age of, even 30 are hungry for community and if you're living in an apartment by yourself in a town where you don't know anybody else in a job now you maybe work from your apartment right you don't even go into the office you really are looking for people to be around to share common interests with have conversations and learn about yourself learn about them Uh, a faith community is an excellent way to do that and so that's something i would encourage people especially when you move to a new city check out a local parish in that way Uh, and we were talking about even the vow of celibacy I have a lot of respect for my colleagues, my brothers who are diocesan priests, who in this day and age largely live by themselves, and that's a vocation in and of itself. I could not do that. I really get those emotional needs met through my religious community. I live with 50 other men over at the seminary, and on campus we have 65, I believe, priests and brothers working actively. So outside of the Vatican, I think maybe Notre Dame (laughs) has the most priests and brothers you're going to find. And that's just great. Same in our parishes, same in our other schools. You're going to go with a group of people. And I certainly need that community around me to uh, talk through the difficult moments, to uh, share what I'm, where I'm hurting, and also to, to be able to do that for others, and then to share a good time, celebrate together as we have somebody taking final vows or welcoming new men who are considering uh, joining our life as well. So I would talk about community a ton. I think it's something that really is missing in our world and faith in general, but Catholic Church in particular really has to offer folks. Yeah, that is huge. So one of the the founders of this podcast with us, Gerardo, he started at our diocese, um, uh, Heart of the City, he called it. And so he really put a focus on just trying to create community. So we had the exalts, the XLTs that we talk about, and it would just spread through the diocese and even some of the neighboring diocese where it's just young people want to be together and yes, share the faith, but even just to have people who they feel like they can connect with outside of it. So that, that was a really cool thing. So if anyone is listening from another diocese and you're 
wanting community, there are probably other people wanting that as well. Maybe try and start something through your parish, through your diocese. Um, it's interesting to me the thought of when we're presenting, I guess, the faith to some of the younger generations. And I'm younger generations. I'm 24 years old. I can't say that, but um, it's it. I find that it's interesting where it starts as almost what's in it for me, but then as they start to digest it and make it part of who they are, it becomes what can I do for others? And I think it's so beautiful to see faith evolve from why would I give up this thing I have? What am I going to get for it? And then internalizing. Once you understand what is being offered to you, what you what God can offer through you to others and, and that idea of being of service. And that's a beautiful thing. Like the brothers and priests and sisters of the Holy Cross, uh, of Holy Cross, from Holy Cross, <laughs> uh, give their lives in such amazing ways. And you spent time in Mexico and who go to Bangladesh. And it's not that we all have to do that to be of service to the Lord. And one of the things that I like to remind is in is when mass ends go in peace to love and serve the lord by your life just the way you live your life directly to the people around you can be so impactful beyond what we'll give ourselves credit because it's it's easy to almost put ourselves down say look at all the great things that they're doing how am i glorifying his kingdom but don't feel like you have to do that to glorify him and don't feel like you aren't doing it from the get-go that brings us to the end of our part one with Father Matt here. Please join us next week where we'll hear Father Matt talk about being culturally Catholic, some common struggles of college students, including loneliness, social expectations, addiction, uh, and the benefits of therapy. We'll also hear Father Matt's thoughts on vocations, discernment, uh, why he is in law school, the Catholic influence on the law, and some advice for facing difficulties. So thank you for listening to part one, and we hope you hear us in part two. Thank you. <laughs>